Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Hello and welcome to the July 4th, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. Happy 4th of July to listeners from the U.S. Let's get right to the summaries of what's new on annals.org so that if you're actually listening over the holiday, you can listen quickly and then go enjoy parades, picnics, barbecues, fireworks, and other 4th of July festivities. First is a randomized controlled trial that found that time-restricted eating, also known as intermittent fasting, produced similar weight loss results to traditional calorie counting in a racially diverse population of adults with obesity. The study also showed that participants who engaged in eight-hour time-restricted eating had improved insulin sensitivity compared to those in the control group. Many traditional weight loss diets involve counting calories, which can be cumbersome and difficult to adhere to. Consequently, time-restricted eating without calorie counting has become a popular weight loss strategy because of its simplicity. However, whether it's effective in producing weight loss, especially beyond the short term, is unclear. Researchers studied 90 adults with obesity from the greater Chicago area to determine whether intermittent fasting or calorie-restricted eating would be more effective for weight control and cardiometabolic risk reduction. Participants were randomly assigned to one of three groups, eight-hour time-restricted eating, which meant eating from noon to 8 p.m. only without any calorie counting, calorie restriction, which meant reducing calorie intake by 25% daily, or control. Both the time-restricted eating and calorie restriction groups met regularly with a dietitian. Participants were not blinded. The authors found that participants who engaged in time-restricted eating ate 425 fewer calories per day than the control group and lost about 10 more pounds than the control group after one year. The calorie-restricted group ate 405 fewer calories per day and lost about 12 more pounds than the control group after one year. Participants showed high adherence to both interventions. The authors of an accompanying editorial say that access to dietitians likely help participants in the intervention groups make healthier food choices. They believe the results of this study can help guide clinical decision-making partially by taking individual preferences into consideration rather than just choosing a diet that may be more effective. They emphasize that the results of the study highlight the substantial individual variability in weight loss using these interventions and that further research is needed to determine who would benefit most from each type of intervention. Next is a study of Medicare beneficiaries who found that very few patients hospitalized with alcohol use disorder were treated with an approved medication to promote behavior change. In the United States, 29 million adults have alcohol use disorder, and alcohol contributes to more than 140,000 deaths annually. Hospitalizations provide an opportunity to promote behavior change by initiating treatment with medications for alcohol use disorder, including naltrexone, acamprosate, and disulfiram. Low prescribing rates for hospitalized patients have been observed in single-center studies, but nationwide data are lacking. Researchers analyzed data related to medication for alcohol use disorder treatment from a national Medicare sample of 20,401 patients from 2015 to 2017. The authors found that only 0.7% of patients with alcohol use disorder documented during hospitalization initiated medication for alcohol use disorder within two days of hospital discharge, and an additional 1.3% initiated medication within 30 days of discharge. Among patients with a primary diagnosis of alcohol use disorder, 2.3% initiated medication treatment within two days of discharge. 
The authors note that the most predictive demographic factor for discharge initiation of medication treatment was younger age. Medication treatment for alcohol use disorder was also more likely among persons with involvement of psychiatry or addiction medicine in their care. An accompanying editorial highlights that the results of this study provide powerful evidence for a missed opportunity to address alcohol use disorder. The editorialists emphasize that health systems need to ensure ready availability of inpatient addiction medicine consultation with consideration of telehealth consultation services for rural hospitals and those without sufficient local expertise in addiction medicine. In some patients who develop blood clots or VTE, there is no clear reason why the clot form. In these cases, guidelines recommend treating with anticoagulation for at least three months. Thereafter, a lifelong decision must be made to either discontinue anticoagulation or continue it indefinitely. The trade-offs between benefits, harms, and costs of indefinite anticoagulation have not been formally assessed. The next article reports a modeling study of a hypothetical cohort of 1,000 persons aged 55 years to evaluate long-term outcomes of indefinite anticoagulation treatment. They also analyzed data related to treatment costs and quality-adjusted life years. The authors found that indefinite anticoagulation prevented 368 recurrent venous thromboembolism events, including 14 fatal pulmonary emboli, but induced 114 additional major bleeding events, which included 30 intracranial hemorrhages and 11 deaths from bleeding. Indefinite anticoagulation cost $16,014 more per person and did not increase quality-adjusted life years. According to the authors, their findings can help clinicians better understand and explain to their patients the trade-offs between recurrent venous thromboembolism and major bleeding events when choosing to discontinue or continue anticoagulation indefinitely after an unprovoked clot. They also emphasize that the close trade-offs demonstrated in the analysis highlight the need for clinicians to incorporate patient preferences and values when considering treatment duration for unprovoked venous thromboembolism. Next is a commentary that argues that the electronic residency application limits a holistic review of each applicant. In contrast, the authors believe that the American Medical College's application service provides a rich template for applicants to describe their early life experiences, any socioeconomic challenges, and the impact on the opportunities that were open to them. The authors urge the electronic residency application to include markers of socioeconomic diversity and the primary application to enable graduate medical education programs to engage more meaningfully in a narrative holistic review of each applicant. As the names of prescription medications for obesity drift into mainstream culture and the public vocabulary, it appears that an effective weight loss pill could become a reality. Popular culture conversations around these medicines, including celebrity endorsement, discuss their appetite-suppressing properties as an aid in weight loss. Authors of a new commentary discuss how these medications complement our current understanding of the neurobiology of obesity. Next is a report of a study of commercially insured adults with chronic non-cancer pain that found that state medical cannabis laws were not associated with receipt of opioid or non-opioid pain treatment suggesting that legal availability of cannabis has not led to large shifts in pain treatment patterns at the population level. In the 37 states in the District of Columbia, with medical cannabis laws, people with chronic non-cancer pain are eligible to use cannabis for pain management. It is hypothesized that legal availability of cannabis may lead to patients with chronic non-cancer pain 
to substitute cannabis in place of prescription opioid or non-opioid prescription pain medications or procedures. However, whether this is the case has been uncertain. Researchers studied insurance claims from 12 states that implemented medical cannabis laws and 17 comparison states to assess the association of such laws on receipt of prescription opioids, non-opioid prescription pain medications, and procedures for chronic non-cancer pain. The researchers found that in any given month during the three years following implementation, cannabis laws were associated with a negligible difference in the proportion of patients receiving any pain medication or chronic pain procedure. According to the researchers, slow implementation could contribute to the study findings. Diagnostic testing for SARS-CoV-2 is an important component in the fight against COVID-19, with at-home rapid tests providing a convenient way for people to test. However, the performance of rapid antigen tests for screening asymptomatic and symptomatic persons for SARS-CoV-2 infection is not well established. The next article reports a study that concludes that repeat testing in 48-hour intervals with a rapid antigen test may be required to rule out SARS-CoV-2 infection. This means that people testing for SARS-CoV-2 should exercise caution in public settings despite an initial negative result if they suspect they may be infected or have been exposed. The researchers studied 5,353 participants who were asymptomatic and negative for SARS-CoV-2 on study day one to evaluate the performance of rapid antigen tests. Rapid antigen tests were performed at home, and reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction tests were collected and shipped to a central laboratory for analysis. The sensitivity of rapid antigen tests was measured on the basis of testing once on the same day, twice after 48 hours and thrice after 96 hours. Using the PCR test as a comparison, the data showed that the performance of the rapid test was optimized when asymptomatic participants tested three times at 48-hour intervals and when symptomatic participants tested two times at the same interval. False positive rates were low for rapid tests, suggesting that repeat testing is not needed for those obtaining a positive result on the first or second try. The researchers advise that while testing, people should continue to practice social distancing and wear masks when around others until repeat testing has ruled out infection. Long-acting injectable therapy for HIV infection holds promise for improving outcomes among populations with barriers to adherence, but currently it is only approved for those who have achieved virologic suppression with the use of oral antiretroviral therapy before initiating injectable long-acting therapy. Researchers from San Francisco General Hospital sought to examine the effect of long-acting antiretroviral therapy in publicly insured adults living with HIV who either had viral suppression and wished to switch to long-acting therapy, or people with HIV and viremia who struggled with daily pill adherence but expressed willingness to visit the clinic for regular injections. The cohort faced barriers to adherence, including high rates of unstable housing, mental illness, and substance use. Among 133 patients in the study, 76 were virologically suppressed when starting long-acting therapy, and 57 were viremic when starting therapy. All but two participants with viremia achieved viral suppression in 26 weeks, which is similar to outcomes observed in clinical trials. The authors of an accompanying editorial believe that these findings provide compelling evidence that long-acting antiretroviral therapy could change the landscape of HIV treatment in prevention by effectively achieving virologic suppression for patients with viremia where there is the greatest need and opportunity.
In the first months of 2023, more than half the states across the United States have sought to prohibit medical care for transgender and gender-diverse people. And by May 2023, over 15 states had passed bills restricting gender-affirming care for transgender youth. Next is a commentary that discusses how such legislation aims to curtail clinicians' authority to provide interventions that medical associations have endorsed as standard of care. Also new on Annals.org are the latest ACP Journal Club summaries and the most recent episode of the Annals on Call podcast featuring a discussion about diagnostic excellence. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll go to Annals.org to take a look at some of the new material I've highlighted. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Lightman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.